Liz Hamburg was raised in the U.S. and graduated from Brown, but she started her career in Japan and then Russia before earning her MBA and founding several companies in the U.S. She's founder and CEO of Can Do Tech, which provides remote technical support and training for older adults, keeping them safe, independent, and connected. The American Medical Association recently declared digital access to be a social determinant of health, opening the door for CanDo to offer its expertise to Medicare Advantage members, whose plans can justify the expense with improved star ratings. Liz spent a decade as a radio co-host with her mom on WOR Radio in New York, which means she's probably overqualified to be on this podcast, but in any case, it was a real pleasure to interview her. I'm David Williams, host of the Health Biz Podcast and president of Health Business Group, a strategy consulting firm that helps companies like CanDo Tech develop robust growth plans. Contact me, dwilliams at healthbusinessgroup.com, to discuss strategy for your company. And while you're at it, please subscribe to the Health Biz Podcast on your favorite service. Well, Can Do Tech founder and CEO Liz Hamburg, welcome to the Health Biz Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Liz, it is fascinating to see what you are doing now, but I have to say, at least as fascinating as just looking through uh, your background, places you've been, things you do, languages you speak. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time uh, on that on that journey, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Well, I always say I do speak a lot of languages. I, I studied Japanese in college and did some of my junior year there. And I studied Spanish and Italian and spent some time living in Russia. But I will say that the language of healthcare is probably the hardest language I've ever had to learn. So. That's, a, that's a tough one. I'm not sure if anybody speaks it uh, fluently. So it, it is definitely, definitely one of the more challenging languages that I've had to learn. But yeah, I've started my career. I've been an entrepreneur for many, many years. I, it's sort of embarrassing to say how many at this point, but um, really started my career working for a Japanese media company. And I was based in New York, but going back and forth to Tokyo. And it was sort of like what we call the Time Warner of Japan at the time. And yeah. they were one of the first licensees of Nintendo back in the day when no one had ever heard of Nintendo and video games were just kind of starting in the US. So I helped them to launch their first uh, video game business. And I was never a business person. I was interested in, in media and communications and journalism. And uh, really, I got hooked. It was just so exciting and fun to start something from scratch and have to think about the marketing of it and the branding of it and the distribution of it. And we went to CES for the first time, the you know, Consumer Electronics Show. And so from that, I really got hooked on starting businesses. I went back to business school. I went to Kellogg at Northwestern in Chicago. Evanston. And then from then on, I've been doing startups. So everything from some of the early stage, what's called ed tech, educational technology companies, where we partnered to Kaplan. And my most exciting adventure was being part of a, a cell phone operator, being part of the founding management team of a cell phone company that was based in Moscow back in the day when things were just changing. And uh, really, it was some of the first private equity money going in there, and we ended up growing it and taking it public on the New York Stock Exchange. So that was kind of a, a wild ride. Now, that's fascinating. So on the, let me just wind back to Japan for a minute, because there's a lot of people who study uh, Japanese in college, and if they go to Japan, they usually go and, and teach English or something like that. But you were, you were going back and forth on, on the video game path. I mean, how did you actually get that job in the first place? 
you know, it was interesting. I'd spent part of my junior year living there and, and working, like many of us, teaching English and so on. And I, I went to Brown University and studied a little bit of Japanese there. And there was a job posting at the time. It was, as I said, a Japanese media company that was looking for Americans to work in New York. I was from New York and wanted to be back in New York. And they needed to speak a little bit of Japanese and it was kind of an entry-level job. And so um, there were a bunch of us Americans, we've all stayed in touch over over the years who were there. They used to call, there were three of us, they used to call Charlie's Angels because yeah. two, of, two of us were 5'10 and the other one had bright red curly hair. They didn't know what to make of us and we all spoke Japanese and we, we sort of stuck together. And at the time we had bosses that were, that didn't really speak English and they weren't particularly interested in working in the US. So at the, you know, tender age of, of 21 years old, they were like, here, you go, you know, go do these deals. And so we really had this incredible adventure and incredible opportunity. That sounds good. Well, your bosses probably uh, had as much of an interesting uh, experience as, uh, as you did being exposed to something un unusual that they hadn't really uh, come across before. They absolutely did. They absolutely did. Yeah. So talk a little bit about some of the other things. I, I noticed you actually, you know, I'm just a podcaster, but you're actually like on Big Career and Radio. So what, what was that like? Well, you know, that was, I grew up around radio. My mother um, had a show on WOR Radio for many, many years. If any of your listeners used to listen in the New York area with Rambling with Gambling, and she had a, a show called The Joan Hamburg Show, and then she eventually moved to ABC Radio, where she still is. And when I got back from my stints living abroad and working out of New York, I was, as I said, a native New Yorker, but kind of new to new, new with fresh eyes in the city, uh, you know, single in my, I think at the time in my late 20s. And so I started going out and about and doing a, a series with her called New York Uncovered, sort of all my discoveries and adventures of New York. And then we started getting questions because the audience had kind of grown up with me and knew that I had done entrepreneurial things and I had had all these adventures. And so they started calling in asking about how to start businesses. And so we started a different segment called Launchpad on entrepreneurs and small business. And it was one of the early shows really interviewing everyone from the original founder of Spanx to, uh, you know, people making cookies in their kitchen. And it was really a, a terrific show that was inspiring lots of other entrepreneurs. So we did that for about 10 years together. That's a nice thing to be able to do with your mom. You know, most people are lucky was, if they get to have lunch with her. So, yeah, it was, well, she kept saying I wouldn't answer her call waiting. So that was the only way she got to actually see me once a week. <laughs> that sounds that sounds about right. So you, as you mentioned, you've started a number of businesses. There's also some that you've done in the nonprofit space. But tell us about the Taproot Foundation. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've always been on boards and wanted to give back. And so when I, I left my last company, um, I really wanted to do something that was in the nonprofit and social impact space. And so Taproot Foundation is a wonderful organization. It's a national nonprofit. It was started by a, a founder and I followed that founder and became the CEO. And we were connecting skilled volunteers to other nonprofits. So, you know, so many nonprofits don't have the resources that they need. And so they really rely on, on volunteers. And this was what we call um, skilled, skilled volunteers or pro bono. So it was all non-legal pro bono. So we worked with a lot of companies. Uh, we worked with volunteers around the country. And this was sort of tying into what I'm doing now because when I came in, Taproot was doing about 200 projects a year and I helped them build an online matching platform where we ended up when I left with about 35,000 volunteers. And in fact, the team that helped me build that that platform is now with me today at Can Do Tech. 
Great. Well, that's a great segue into talking about Can Do Tech. I love the name. First of all, it sounds like, of course, like Can Do, but also the, I guess the first thing that came to my mind, and maybe it's because we're recording this during the uh, the winter, is it sounds like a snowmobile as well. So uh, Can Do oh. Tech, what's this, like Ski-Do, you know? So that's the... <laughs> I never heard snow, snowmobile, but it really was the idea of like, you can do it and we can help. And so yeah. it was really all about empowering, you know, and you, you always hear, especially from older adults, but many of us who were you know, technophobes that, oh my God, I can't do it. It's too complicated. I'm too stupid. I don't understand it. I'm too old to learn. And so, you know, we kept saying, no, you can do it. You can do it. And then someone said, well, you know, let, let's just call it can do tech. And so that was, that was really how it came about. And um, it started really from a, a very personal inspiration. You know, my dad who passed away a couple of years ago at almost 90, but he literally lived next door to Best Buy. Yeah. And he was the first guy in line for every gadget you can imagine. In fact, when he passed away, there were, you know, piles of old Kindles and iPads and he would buy everything and he never knew how anything worked. And so, you know, he had Geek Squad on speed dial and he was um, constantly at the Apple store, you know, talking to the geniuses. But as he got older, he had so like so many people, you know, who, who go who get to be that age had macular degeneration. He was he wore hearing aids. He was hard of hearing. In the end, he had some cognitive decline and some mobility issues. And so, you know, the traditional support just wasn't cutting it for him. And it culminated one day. I don't know if you listened to the, the voicemail on my website, but he left a voicemail, which was real. And he said uh, he said, Alexia, he called her Alexia. Yeah. He said, Alexia has gone out of town. He's like, I don't know where to find her. I don't know what to do. You know, I've tried her five times. Call me back. And so he was kind of joking, but he really wasn't because he really yeah. needed to ask Alexa something. She really wasn't responding and he wasn't going to pay Geek Squad to have someone come over and figure it out. And it was just a quick question, but he was so frustrated. And so that's when the light bulb went off for me to say, you know, there's got to be a better way and we've got to have something that's a reliable, affordable, accessible way for older adults to feel comfortable with their technology. Yeah, it's a really interesting uh concept I'm thinking about. You You were mentioning your, your dad, you know, didn't know how things worked. There, there's a lot of um, just assumption that people that are older don't understand technology or don't use it and so on. But interestingly, I, I find that, um, you know, some of the older people that maybe were involved in the, you know, the early days, maybe they programmed a mainframe or had some early exposure, um, maybe actually understand a little bit fundamentally at some of the lower levels, some of how things actually work. And some people who are younger and facile using, you know, TikTok, or Facebook or some, not necessarily Facebook, but some other, other kinds of things, they don't actually understand how a computer works. And exactly. so there's, there's sometimes uh, inverse correlation between age and, and, and understanding. And then the other thing is that if you consider, you, know, you mentioned that with macular degeneration, uh, which of course makes it harder for people to be able to see, the people that can actually most benefit in a, in a profound way from the technology are often older people, right? It might be fun for a young person to do like a crazy zooming Absolutely. thing in, but the older people could actually benefit from it. So you, you just brought up a couple of very interesting ideas. Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely right. And that's why we're so excited to start working with the health plans. And what um, I was really, really excited to see, I don't know if you heard this, but just recently the AMA, American Medical Association, deemed uh, digital access as a social determinant of health. It was interesting to me because, you know, we traditionally think about, obviously, social isolation, you know, is one of the top ones, access to healthcare, you know, access to food, access to transportation. But, you know, what, what one of the reasons I started Can Do Tech, and it's a for-profit, but it's a public benefit corp, so we have social impact goals. And one of my original goals was to say, how can we use technology to improve the lives of older adults? And that was pre-pandemic. So, 
you know, we've really seen a very, very big impact, but we also are very like happy in a way, even though it's a, it's a bad situation, but happy that AMA is acknowledging that digital access is, is a barrier. And so, you know, what we found is it's not enough to just say, yeah, we're going to put broadband, you know, in, in all of America, or it's not enough to say we're going to hand everyone a tablet. But if you don't show people how to use it, no matter what age, but especially older adults, if you don't show them how to use it and then have someone there to support them, frankly, it's what we call it, you know, very expensive paperweight. Now, was there was there any sort of, I mean, I just wonder what the debate was like. I don't know if you're privy to it in declaring digital health access uh, social determinant. I mean, was that sort of universally acclaimed once people hear about it or is that controversial, do you think? You know, it's a great question. I wish I, I was behind those closed doors. I, I don't think it's controversial at all. But, you know, I think the real question is, how is it going to be? What it, What is the result of that? Because I think everyone acknowledges there is a digital divide. And the question is, you know, who is going to fund this? And so that's really been, you know, my soapbox is to say uh, the Medicare Advantage, you know, plans are starting to acknowledge. And again, there there certainly is money for broadband access and for tablets. But um, really, you know, we, I want people to think about what digital access means, and it's more than just the hardware and the broadband. Right. Now, interesting. So, you know, you talked about the original inspiration for the, the company, and clearly you'd had a lot of experience leading up to its founding. How have things evolved since you kicked off? Yeah, well, we started pre-pandemic, so they've evolved quite a bit. You yeah. know, we were working... In the New York area, my original hypothesis was you had to be in person, sitting next to someone, holding their hand, and you know showing them and and literally put you know pushing buttons and pointing them from place to place, and that was going along really well. But we we stopped all that in um, pretty much in March April of 2020, and we started experimenting with remote access. And I was originally quite skeptical, to be honest. I thought you know this is never going to work, and this population you know you need to be by their side. But I'm really happy to say that it's worked really, really well. So we're now completely nationwide and we went from mostly serving, you know, a, a direct to consumer business to now mostly working with um, with enterprises. So we are partnering with senior living facilities, we're partnering with government agencies, with social service agencies, and then of course now with the health plans to really, again, bring this um, digital access and bring this digital literacy to this population. It's very interesting what you say because I see on your website now there's a banner I think that says everything is uh, you know is done remotely. But when yeah. you consider how do you reach people and how do you scale, you know it's one thing when you have to be in person, but then when you can't be in person, then all of a sudden you figure yeah. out a way to do it otherwise. And then your assumptions about you know how you're going to roll out and scale up. Uh, really changed, it sounds like, in, in your case. Yeah, absolutely. And what's been great is we're working with everyone from, you know, very urban environments to very rural environments. You know, we have clients who are in, um, in very rural areas of Missouri and Ohio where they don't even have broadband access. You know, everything is a cellular data-enabled tablet. You know, maybe they see someone who drops off food once a week. And so this is like their lifeline. You know, they, they we give them a tablet teach them how to use that tablet. And then that's really, you know, opening up a world to them where all of a sudden they can do virtual senior center activities. They can get onto telemedicine visits. You know, they can communicate with their friends and family where they were completely cut off, you know, again, especially during the pandemic. But I think that we have to acknowledge that hopefully we're, you know, we're somewhere, I wouldn't say at the tail end, but maybe, you know, down another wave of the, of the pandemic. But 
um, you know, that this, this digital access and kind of window to the world is not going away. When the pandemic started up, you had people that had, you know, and I'll put my, my mother in this category, people that never really thought about, you know, using Zoom or anything like that. All of a sudden they started to use it out of necessity. Now, one thing that I think we have to give credit to older people for is that, you know, they recognize the value of in-person. Sometimes they'll see the, 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 yeah. the kids or the grandkids who, you know, they're on their, they're on their machine and they, they don't recognize the benefit of doing things in person. But there is something on the other side too, which is, hey, there's a lot that you can do digitally. And then as you say, once they have kind of enabled, then they feel capable and they can, they can do other things that allow them to allow older people to be less isolated and more able to, yeah. uh, to participate. Well, and again, we don't see it as an either or, you know, we want people to get back in person. We want to get back to our lives. Social isolation, we know, has significant health risks. So, you know, we never want everyone to just be on their devices. That's not good for anyone. But at the same time, we also know that technology is here to stay. You know, we had a client who wanted to reorder her stationery. And, you know, she used to be she would walk into the stationery store and talk to the, you know, the retail person and she would order her, you know, personalized stationery and that was it. Now she has to do it online and she was lost, you know, so uh, the real question is how do you, you know, how do you make sure that people can get what they need to get done, whether that's ordering groceries, watching movies, and also be able to, you know, go out and enjoy each other in person. Now, you mentioned the language of healthcare being difficult. One of the nice things about social the determinants of health is it's sort of, you know, you're not quite in the healthcare realm, but I think maybe you also get a little bit closer. Are there things like uh, telehealth um, that you're involved with? Like how, how close do you get to the uh, big bad healthcare world itself? Well, we get pretty close because we are working now with the Medicare plan, with Medicare Advantage plans. Yeah. And so, you know, definitely looking at those and how do we help improve star ratings and how do we, you know, improve access to healthcare. Um, you know, we do obviously for, we are very, very careful and conscious of security and, um, and safety. So we don't, you know, we don't do things like save people's passwords or, you know, go into their bank accounts, but we do help them when they need to install an app to, to access their health insurance or to access a telemedicine visit. We're there to help them download that app, learn how to use it, you know, reset passwords. So we're very much involved in the world of getting them comfortable with their technology around healthcare. You know, you mentioned about helping the plans with their star ratings. And, and of course, the Medicare Advantage plans get paid more if they get, uh, get higher ratings and, it, and it's, it's just fundamental to their business models. What what are the ways that you help and is is your ability to influence the star ratings uh, going up, going down, staying the same? Yeah, it's a great question. Well, we're just in the process of rolling out with our first health plan, which we're, we will be announcing very shortly. Great. So we can uh, let you let you be one of the first yeah. to know about it. Um, it's in the New York area. So um, I can't comment on, on the impact on the star ratings yet, um, but we do believe that they will have a significant impact. We've been doing surveying of our of our users and our what's called CSAT score, our customer satisfaction score, is between ninety six and ninety nine percent. So right. we definitely have seen you know strong satisfaction on our ratings, and we also have been doing impact studies on if um, if our clients can get onto things like telemedicine, has it improved their ability to engage and connect with family and friends? Um, has it been able to improve their access to healthcare? Has it been able to improve their ability to research medical conditions? And so all of those are really pointing 
trends in the right direction. So, um, you know, we'll, I, I think if I come back on in six months, yeah. I'll be able to answer that question, hopefully positively on the star ratings. That sounds good. I know that, you know, the, um, just the direct level of satisfaction uh, has become more important uh, for the star ratings. And so to the extent that you can uh, help to solve people's uh, frustrations that they have with life and have the health plan be yeah. uh, part of that, uh, it should it should be helpful. So, absolutely. And the other thing is just engagement. You know, so what we've seen a lot of is how do you how do you increase and improve engagement? And if you're not able to even download the app that you know all of the plans have spent so much time and money investing yeah. in and creating, then you know there it, it's really hard to to measure and improve engagement. So from a very base level. You know, making sure that that a member can actually download the app and knows how to use it is, you know, the most basic and fundamental thing that we can help them do. Liz, you alluded to this a couple of minutes ago uh, when you're talking about not storing passwords and so on. But I want to ask you about the the risks that are out there and the threats uh, from cyber attacks and scams and so on. Now, this affects uh, everybody. I, I even though I actually work in cybersecurity, you know, I have been a victim myself. Uh, certainly, this happened to my uh, to my parents, it happens throughout healthcare. What role do you play, if any, in, in helping older people to deal with the threats, the cyber threats that are out there? Yeah, it is unfortunately a very real problem and continuing to grow. You know, we do a couple of things. One is just from our staff and our, you know, our security standpoint, all of our tech concierges, they're US based, they're W2 employees, they're background checked, reference checked, and we record all calls for quality control. And if someone's on a shared screen, you know, we are, they always, they can only get onto a shared screen with someone's permission. And, you know, we're tracking um, when they log in and when they log off. So we're definitely monitoring for safety and security of our internal team. And then, you know, we get calls all the time from, unfortunately, from clients who've said, oh, someone called and said, you know, they were Microsoft and I let them into my computer. Yeah. So we do a lot around education. We do a lot of group lessons, blogs, you know, information on how to stay safe and secure online. And then we also tell them, look, if you ever get a phone call and you're not sure about it, call can do, you know, because we become the trusted resource and we're able to really vet, you know, sometimes, you know, that like right click on an email and see if it's a real email. So we're able to check things on their behalf. And unfortunately, then when they do get scammed, which it happens, you know, we have a, a protocol to go through where we can um, make sure that we, you know, we clear out um, any malware and kind of advise them on how to clean and check their, their machines. Liz, you mentioned when you started the company, it was based on some insights, some, you know, coming from your, your father about what's possible for older people, what they need and so on. What have you learned on the way maybe that surprised you that you wouldn't have expected going in? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We've, we've been, um, over the last couple of years, been consulting with experts. So we now have teams of, you know, geriatric specialists and audiologists and cognitive enrichment specialists and, uh, you know, vision impairment specialists. So we're constantly really learning of like, what are best practices and what are some things that we can share to really improve the lives of people with accessibility needs. And so that's been an exciting development on our side in one way that we're really quite different from, you know, your, your typical tech guy or, or from Geek Squad. Yeah. Um, you know, I think for me, um, I'm not surprised because I, I know how powerful people can feel and how empowered, but it's been really um, amazing to see that people who've had no experience at all with technology, our oldest was 105. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of people who literally have never, who've been on a flip phone or never had technology at all, never had, you know, broadband connection at home, 
are able to really, with a couple of hours of, of training, you know, even remote training, can feel really empowered by their technology. And so that's been really a, a fantastic and beautiful thing to see. You kind of answered this before in terms of where do you go from here, because it sounds like you're just starting in with Medicare Advantage, which is, I think, probably what's going to drive you forward. But uh, any other thoughts on kind of where you take the company from here? Yeah, again, we see healthcare is a really, really interesting and important place to go. Um, so that is, you know, definitely the direction we're moving in. We're continuing to work with senior living facilities um, and then, you know, with government agencies as well. So, you know, we, we also fundamentally, we're, we are a tech company. So I'm also really excited about, you know, the data that we're collecting, obviously all, you know, anonymized data, but um, really being able to look at the trends of what are the questions people are asking, where are they getting stuck? being able to advise both hardware and software providers on how to improve their own technology and being able to make our our services a lot more efficient um, as we're starting to learn and gather that data and figure out how we can be most helpful. Great. So the final question is a question that I ask all my all my guests, although I'll add a little I'll add a little uh, twist to it for you. And that's about, um, you know, any books that you're reading and anything you recommend. And I'll, I'll also just ask, you know, what language is the book in before we uh specify that for anybody well, else. Well, English. Okay. <laughs> um, a couple of things. I'm a big fiction reader because I, you know, need to sort of turn my brain off and yeah. just do something fun at the end of the day. So um, a couple of things. On the fiction side, I'm reading something that a, an old friend and a former classmate of mine from Brown just came out. She was a, a cater, a wedding planner and a caterer, and she has become a best-selling author. And the name of her new book, and I have to look because I, yeah. you know, it's so funny. When I read on the Kindle now, so I never remember the names yeah, of so any you don't, books. You put, the cover, you, you put it down, and if you're like me, it has the ads on it. So you just see whatever they're advertising and not what yeah. not your book. Yeah. But her book is called Olga, Olga Dies Dreaming by Sochil Gonzalez. And it, it actually hit a couple of bestseller lists. So I'm really, really Great. proud of her for making a big career change. And, and on the business side... Um, I've been reading and we just have initiated on our team something called OKRs. I uh -huh. don't know if you follow those, but um, nope. objectives and key results. So uh, there's a book called Measure What Matters by John Doerr. He's a, a big yeah. venture capitalist who's one of the early investors in Google. And it's all about how do you how do you set goals for the team and how do you look at objectives and sprints and things like that. So that my team has really started um, taking that to heart. It's been kind of a game changer in the way that we set goals and hold each other accountable. Well, great. Well, Liz Hamburg, founder and CEO of Can Do Tech and many other things. Thanks so much for joining me today on the Health Biz Podcast. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And I hope I can come back and report on those improved star ratings in a couple of months. <laughs> Absolutely. You've been listening to the Health Biz Podcast with me, David Williams, president of Health Business Group. I conduct in-depth interviews with leaders in healthcare business and policy. If you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe on your favorite service. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe on your second and third favorite services as well. There's more good stuff to come, and you won't want to miss an episode. If your organization is seeking strategy consulting services in healthcare, check out our website, healthbusinessgroup.com.